and the reading is taken from Ezra chapter 3 um, and chapter 4 verses 1 to 5 and it's on page 474 in the Blue Church Bibles. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring sedologues by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asphah, with cymbals, took their places to praise the, praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. 
Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Thanks, Lise, very much. Do keep that open, and let's pray, shall we? Father, we just sang together, speak, O Lord, and that is our prayer now, that you would speak to us, that you might help us listen And Lord, not only listen to your word, but obey it, that we might be a people who live for your glory. Amen. Well, last week we saw something of God's heart for restoration. If you remember, the book of Ezra begins with God's people at a devastating low. They're in exile in Babylon while the promised land, their their, their lives, their homes, and most significantly the temple lie in ruins. That is until Ezra Chapter 1, verse 1, when God initiates the great return, when God moves the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, allowing God's people to return from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild their city, their temple, and their lives. And so last week, we thought about the return, the movement back of the Lord's people. This morning, we think about the rebuild in chapters 3 and 4. God's people return in order to rebuild the temple. Because as we saw last week, God's primary aim in bringing his people home, God's primary objective in bringing people to himself, is that he would restore them for a life of wholehearted worship. And as we watch this building program unfold this morning, it does so in two main phases, which you can see in your NIV Bibles if you've got it in front of you. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, we have the rebuilding of the altar. And then from verse 7 to 13, we have the rebuilding of the temple. And then in chapter 4, we read the first little section of that there. We see significant opposition to this rebuilding work. First, you know, before we come to the rebuilding of the temple, we read about the rebuilding of the altar, which may come as a bit of a surprise that the altar is built first. Now, I'm not much of a builder, as most of you probably know, but I've seen enough grand designs to know that there is a, a order to a building project. You start by building the main house, your primary dwelling is built first, and when that is up, only then can you sort out the landscaping. You level out the ground and you put in your borders and you lay your lawn and you insert your nice fountain feature in the middle of your garden. The main building comes first and then the landscaping comes after. That's the normal pattern, right, of building. That's not the case, though, in Ezra chapter 3. Have a look at verse 2. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. Before they even lay a stone for the temple, they get to work on the altar, which is actually, you could say, part of the landscaping. It's out there in the courtyard. Here's a picture of the, of the first temple that was built under Solomon. The second temple that's been rebuilt here is, is, a, is a blueprint of this one. And you see the main temple building there, the Holy of Holies. And then you come out into the courtyard and you've got all these, the basins for washing, for ceremonial cleansing. And there on the right-hand side, you've got the altar itself where the sacrifices were offered. 
And so you see, when God's people return, they return to rebuild the temple. And we presume they're going to start by rebuilding the temple. But they don't. They actually begin out there in the courtyard by rebuilding the altar. In fact, before they've even laid the foundation of the temple, they're already offering sacrifices on the altar. You can see that, look, in verse 6. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Now, in architectural terms, that seems a pretty bizarre way of doing things. But in spiritual terms, it makes complete sense. The rebuilding of the altar comes before the rebuilding of the temple because our vertical relationship with the Lord comes before anything else. That's what the altar represents. It is a place where sacrifices were offered in order that we might walk in a right relationship with the Lord. And it's no different today. Before we give ourselves to temple building, before we set about the work of the Lord, we need to make sure that we are walking well with him. Our personal vertical relationship with the Lord Jesus trumps everything else. The altar must be built before the temple. Our relationship with Jesus Christ must come before all things. It's a principle that we see worked out in the New Testament. You'll see there the words from the Apostle Paul, his farewell speech, the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, we read this. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Paul's instruction to the Ephesian elders is to guard their own hearts before they watch over the lives of others. Robert Murray McShane, who was a minister up in Scotland in the 19th century, was once famously asked by um, his congregation, what, what, what is the people's greatest need? And he famously said to them, the people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. If you're a leader in any capacity in this church, leading S Club, Leading Connect, leading a home group, leading Impact, Adventurers, Rarer, leading Spectrum. If you're a leader in any capacity in the life of this church, what your people need most is your own personal holiness. They need you to be walking well with the Lord yourself. And of course, this principle goes way beyond leadership, doesn't it? If you're going to be a blessing to others... If you're going to be a blessing in your families, to each other, to your children, if you're going to be a blessing to your neighbours in your street, if you're going to be a blessing to your colleagues at work who don't know Christ, if you're going to be a blessing to one another, the body of Christ, as we gather here this morning, if you're going to be effective in kingdom-building work, then you need to invest firstly in your relationship with the Lord. The altar must be built before the temple. Our relationship with Jesus Christ comes before anything else. And so my question, you know what's coming, it's a pretty simple question. Is that the case for you? Is your relationship with the Lord Jesus your primary, all-important relationship in life? If so, how committed to the Lord Jesus are you? You see in verse 3, we see how committed... God's people were here to rebuilding the altar to their relationship with the Lord. This is what we read. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar 
on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, despite the fear of the peoples around them. Despite what people might be saying, despite what people might be thinking, despite what people might do, they built the altar. They prioritized their relationship with their Lord, and so should we. Whatever people might say, whatever people might think about you, if you put Christ first in all of life, whatever people might do, Jesus must come first. And that's not just for our sake. It's for the sake of others as well. Because after they rebuild the altar, they are called to rebuild the temple. That's how the flow of the passage works. And that brings us to our second point, the building of the temple. Have a look how verse 7 begins. Then, i.e. after the building of the altar, when your relationship with the Lord is right, then... They gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they could bring logs by sea from Lebanon and Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Then in verse 8, led by Zerubbabel and Joshua, they appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. After the building of the altar comes the building of the temple. Now, before we apply this principle of of temple building to our own lives, it's worth saying that our temple building program doesn't involve masons and carpenters. It doesn't involve transporting logs by boats from Joppa and Lebanon. Our building program involves proclamation and prayer. It involves sharing Christ, the good news of the gospel, with each other and with the people of this world as we go to our knees in prayer and ask the Lord that he would build his church. You see, we are not building a physical temple. We're called to join the Lord Jesus as he builds his spiritual home, as he builds his church in this place. You see, the temple is all about God's presence and God's glory. It's where God chose to to manifest himself, to most supremely make his presence known. But the temple, of course, wasn't meant to stand forever. It was just a shadow of a far greater reality that was to come, a reality that we see clearly in two ways in the New Testament. Firstly, in the person of Jesus. We see this in his dialogue with the Jews in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. As they stand before the physical building, it's taken 46 years, they say, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken about was the temple of his own body. Jesus, you see, is the true temple. The place or indeed the person in whom the glory and the presence of God is most manifest. The temple was a shadow, and it was always going to be a shadow. Jesus is the great reality. But secondly, we see that the temple is but a shadow of the New Testament church. When Jesus left this earth, when he ascended into heaven, he gave his spirit to the church in order that his presence and glory would continue to be visible, not in a building, but in his people. You see, we are God's New Testament temple. Look at the words of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, as you come to him, that's Christ, as you come to Christ, the living stone, 
rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, we don't need masons and carpenters and logs from Lebanon. We need to be a people who are committed to proclamation and to prayer because that is how God builds his church today. That is New Testament temple building. One of Mir and Caleb's favorite songs that we're singing with a minute is Brick After Brick. And it's a song which helps understand the, the continuity between the Old Testament, how it, it makes itself wonderfully known in the church. These are, these are some of the words. God used to dwell in a house among his people, but now he has a home that's better than the first. Doesn't look like a building with a steeple. Now he's living in the people of the church. Brick after brick, we've got actions for all. Brick after brick, God is building his temple. Brick after brick, he is making it strong with Christ, the sure foundation, and his people as the stones. He's building a place he can live in the hearts of his people, and he's doing it brick after brick after brick. Jesus is building his church, and he calls each one of us to be a part of this glorious, eternal building project. And back in Ezra chapter 3, I think we learn two things about the nature of this work. Firstly, temple building is corporate. Do you see that there in verse 1? When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. They didn't just assemble, they didn't just gather together because that's what people do. They came together as one. There was a shared mind, there was a common cause, there was a purpose that they were committed to together, and that purpose was building the temple. We see the same thing in verse 8. In the second month, the second year, after the arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Did you notice who's involved in the building program there in the middle of verse 8? All who had returned. Every single one of the faithful remnant, 43,000 and whatever it was, that came back from Babylon to Jerusalem, they all, as one, committed themselves to temple building work. Now, it doesn't mean there's no need for a leadership. You can see in verse 8 that Zerubbabel and Joshua, they were leading the charge at this point. But, of course, that doesn't mean they do all the work. All of God's people have a responsibility to build the house of the Lord. Temple building is corporate. It is something that we do together. See the same principle, don't you, in the, the New Testament picture of the body. The church is a body of Christ. All parts of the body working together, right? Every single part of the body working as one in service of the glory of our great head who is Jesus Christ. And one part of the body can't look at another part of the body and say, I don't need you. Every single member, every single part of the body of Christ is needed, is wanted, is required in God's great building work. Firstly, we need to remember that temple building is corporate. Secondly, Temple building is joyful. Have a look down at verse 10 
and 11. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. And do you know what song they sang? They sang the same song they did back in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 when the first temple was completed under Solomon. He is good. He is good. And his love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Temple building work is joyful work. And here's the beautiful thing in these few verses. Even though the temple isn't complete at this stage, there's still cause for rejoicing, right? You see, that great moment of unbridled rejoicing, of course, will be when every single number of the redeemed gather around the great throne in heaven, when God's eternal building project is complete, when every last number has been called and we're standing before God Almighty. But that doesn't mean there isn't cause for rejoicing on the way. When another lost sinner returns to Christ and trusts him, another brick, another living stone is added to God's temple. Or when another believer who is struggling, life is tough, it's hard, and they persevere in faith because people around them stand together as one and we rejoice together as God preserves his people for his glory. Temple building work is joyful work. So get your trumpets ready for your symbols or whatever you do to praise the Lord. Get them ready and expect God Almighty to do good things through his people because he is good and his love endures forever. Yet this side of heaven... We're also aware that kingdom work leads to weeping. Verse 12 and verse 13. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Here's the deal. If you commit wholeheartedly with all of your life to kingdom building work, it will result in both joy and weeping. You'll be overjoyed at points along the way, but you will also weep. What's the cause for weeping here in these verses? Well, it's got something to do with an unfavorable comparison between the first temple and the second one that's been rebuilt. We know that because it's those of old who could remember enough, who remembered the first temple. They were the ones who were weeping. Now, the issue can't have been what the temple looked like. Second temple's not finished, right? It's a foundation stone at this point. It's just a slab. Can't be comparing the finished temple. It's also not an issue of size. It's not that these people that had seen the first temple looked at the foundation slab and thought, cool, that's small. That's insignificant. That's inferior compared to the first temple. It was, in fact, the same dimensions as the first temple. The issue, I think, here surrounds God's presence and God's glory. You see, when the first temple was complete... And the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the most holy place. The glory cloud of the Lord fell and descended on this place. And the people burst forth with praise. 
But now there is no ark. The glory of the presence of the Lord will never fill the second temple in the way that it filled the first and the older generations knew it. It is a discontinuity that points us forward to the Lord Jesus, who is the true temple, the full manifestation and the glory of God when he tabernacled, he templed here during his time on earth. And until we see the Lord Jesus face to face in the new creation, until we stand before him, temple work now will result in both joy and weeping. Joy because by the grace of God, we are part of an eternal building project. You get your heads around that? What we're involved in in the church is going to last forever. Other stuff doesn't. What we are building by the grace of God, what he's building through us, will last forever. But sorrow, because as we build by the grace of God in his strength, we continue to build in a world that is broken by sin. Rebuilding the altar is our priority. Our relationship with the Lord Jesus comes before anything else. Rebuilding the temple is our purpose and it is our collective calling together. But then lastly, as we commit to this work, we recognize that we should expect opposition. And that's what Ezra chapter 4 is all about. Have a look down at verse 4 and 5. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The word discouraged there literally means to weaken the hands. Of course, opposition comes in different ways, different guises at different times, but its purpose is always the same. Its purpose is to weaken the hands of the Lord's workforce. Look again at the words used in verse 5. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's 17 years of almost constant opposition, discouragement, and frustration. And the results, I'll flick forward to verse 24 where chapter 4 ends. Thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It's a pretty startling way, isn't it, to end chapter 4? The opposition was effective, temporarily. You see, we have the promise of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. He will build his church. In the end, all opposition will give way to Jesus. All opposition will fall at his feet and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. But along the way, it doesn't mean that there won't be times when opposition is sadly effective in the lives of God's people. Here in Ezra chapter 4, the people down tools. They put their tools down and they give up. And the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. Relentless opposition has a way of wearing people down. And we need to be aware of that. Flip forward, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Because here we read of the roots of all the opposition that we face in life as the people of God. 
Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Spiritual opposition is very real. And as one commentator said, we hear the roar in Ezra chapter 4. The lion of 1 Peter chapter 5 who is roaring and prowling, we hear his roar in Ezra chapter 4. It is a chapter that exposes the subtle, wicked schemes of Satan as he seeks to discourage, oppose and frustrate the people of God at every turn. Our enemy will do whatever he can to weaken the hands of God's people. And that's why we need to put on the full armor of God. As we read in Ephesians chapter 6, in order we might take our stand against the schemes of the evil one. And that little section finishes with these wonderful words in verse 18. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Keep on praying because we're in a spiritual battle and we need the Lord's help. In the context of Ezra chapter 3 and 4, can I give you two things, please, to pray for? Number one, will you pray for yourself and for each other that we would build the altar first? Above anything else in life, your primary relationship is with the Lord Jesus who gave all things for you. Pray for yourself. Pray for your brothers and sisters that we would invest in that relationship above all other things. And then number two, would you pray that God would strengthen our hands? Satan is at work to weaken the hands of God's workforce at every single turn. Yet in Jesus Christ, we have one who is conquered, don't we? Now the cross is conquered sin and evil. Through the resurrection, he has conquered death and he is triumphant over all in this world. And one day, all opposition will bow and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. He alone and nobody else can strengthen the hands of God's people as we give ourselves fully to his work alone. When you take a minute now to do that, maybe those two prayers... Pray them in the, in the quietness of your own heart. Pray that we would build the altar first, that we would prioritize our walk with the Lord and pray that as we give ourselves to gospel work, we would see the Lord build his kingdom as he protects us. Then we'll sing together as we close.